If you would, open your Bibles to James chapter 5, the book of James chapter 5. The third point in James' sermon in this letter is that we should, in fact, keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. That is, the world which is a system that stands in opposition to God, that is in rebellion against God, that is or presents, seemingly, an alternative to what God intended. And at the end of chapter 3 and then through chapter 4, and now into chapter 5, James has brought up the issue of two wisdom, heavenly wisdom and that which is, in fact, earthly. And as we've seen, it's not always easy to see the difference between the two. And part of the reason is because we are sinners and oftentimes we take that which is not right to be something that is in fact right. Their characteristics and the results are in fact what should give us really clear insight into which is heavenly wisdom and which is earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is marked by envy and selfish ambition and it results in disorder and every kind of evil. So James tells us. Heavenly wisdom, on the other hand, is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. If that's the case, why, in fact, would one embrace earthly wisdom? If, in fact, it is marked by envy and selfish ambition and it results in all kinds of evil, why would one embrace earthly wisdom? Well, for James, he traces it back to the root. It is a dysfunctional relationship with God, a wrong relationship. And James uses two metaphors to describe this dysfunction. One is adultery, and one is, in fact, going to war, breaking a treaty. Um, Gia read to us from Hosea chapter 2, and In graphic detail, we are told of Gomer's unfaithfulness. She's married, she has children, but she chooses to be promiscuous and to sleep with other men. And that is the picture, God says, of his people who are unfaithful to him. The reason for the unfaithfulness is because we are trying to live in two worlds at the same time. That is, we are trying to be Christians and unbelievers at the same time to believe and not believe. As a result, we try to pursue two different kinds of wisdom, heavenly wisdom on Sundays and earthly wisdom through the rest of the week. So what is the key? I mean, how do we know, how do we get to heavenly wisdom? Well, the path of heavenly wisdom is marked by humility. That is the key. James is telling us that we should keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And then he brings up, and this is where we are right now, three different evidences that we have left the path of humility. Instead of pursuing heavenly wisdom through humility, we've left that path. In fact, um, we've chosen earthly, diabolical wisdom instead. We looked at two last week, slandering others and being presumptuous about our futures. We will look today at the third one, which is the misuse of wealth. Why does he pick these three? One could argue he could have picked many other areas in our lives in which we fall short. Uh, Why does he mention these three? I think they all are aspects of the need for humility. When we slander someone else, we definitely show a lack of humility. See more in a minute. When we are presumptuous about the future, this is what I'm going to do, we lack humility. And as we will see in a few moments, oftentimes our use of wealth shows an absence of humility as well. They're all marked by a self-centeredness, an insistent self-centeredness. I know what's right, this person is wrong, Therefore, I have the right to speak ill of this person. Or, I am the center of the world. I will make decisions, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to make money and do all these various things. Um, But one could argue that's the way people are. (laughs) That's just the way people are. And that's precisely James' point. 
That's the way we are apart from the grace of God. We are arrogant and would denigrate other people. We are, in fact, rather arrogant when it comes to the matter of our own lives, of what is going to happen to us. And we are covetous about the wealth, about wealth in general, not necessarily the wealth of others, but wealth in general. And in the process, we defraud others. There are two themes that run through this whole section. The first is that we are human beings and we are weak and we are insecure. We don't really know ourselves. James asks the question, who are you? And it's like, whoa, okay, I need to think about who I am. The other thing is God is great and God has strength. We are weak, we are sinful, God is great and he is strong. There's only one lawgiver, we're told, and judge in verse number 12, chapter 4. And then if it is the Lord's will. And then finally, in chapter 5, verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. More on this in a minute. So I said, we've looked at the two. The, he talks against slandering or defamation. Just to review quickly, to defame someone, as James is talking about it, doesn't mean that you lie about them. You, you may, in fact, be telling the truth about that person. Um, but what you're doing, if you think about it, is you are, in fact, not being humble. You have, you have abandoned, you've careened off the path of humility. In judging a brother, we speak down to that person when we slander them. We put ourselves in a high position and we are slandering them. Again, we may be speaking the truth. But the truth is not, you know, the truth about what someone has done is not necessarily something that needs to be broadcasted abroad. We also see ourselves as judges of God's law. That what God tells us to do is actually, you know, that was centuries ago, that was millennia ago when God gave it to Moses, and you know, the world is different. We are a much more advanced civilization now, and um, we have 24-7 news on TV, on the radio, uh, on the internet. Uh, the idea that I should tell the truth about someone seems appropriate, but in fact it shows a total lack of humility. It also means that we seek to take God's place. That we become the lawgiver, we become the judge of other people. As I said last week, defaming someone is not necessarily a breach of truth, because you may in fact be telling the truth about the person. It's not even a breach of love, though I think it is that. It is a breach of humility. You have ceased to be human. You have exalted yourself up to be in a position to speak about someone else. And so James asks the question, who are you? We might even rephrase it, how dare you? Who do you think you are that you would do such a thing? When we obey God's law, the royal law, we love our neighbor as ourselves. We value others as we should. We accept God's law for what it is. We acknowledge that God is the supreme authority, not me. We see ourselves as we should. On the other hand, if we say, no, I, I, I'd rather go you know, door number two, please, that is earthly wisdom, we think, in fact, what's wrong with telling the truth about someone? What's wrong with letting the situation dictate your response, what you're going to say? What's wrong with letting your conscience be your guide? What's wrong with standing up for yourself? Because if you don't, who will? We are not God. He alone is the lawgiver and judge. We are made in his image. We are to obey him. We are to seek to be conformed to his image. We are to walk the path of humility. And then he talked against presumption in verses 13 through 17 and demonstrates on a number of levels that someone has, in fact, totally abandoned the path of humility. James reminds his readers of three things. First of all, how ignorant we are. 
we're going to go to this place and for a year we're going to buy and sell and make money. It's like you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. How ignorant we are. Now you're talking about a year and someplace else. We are in, quite, in fact quite ignorant. And we are frail. We are missed. As I said last Sunday, this doesn't mean we're insignificant. Okay, he's not saying you're nothing. What he's saying is we are in fact quite temporary. Our time here is quite short. And then there is the eternal state. And so uh, we, you know, we don't know how long we will live. We don't know when our lives will come to an end. We are frail. And the third thing is that we are dependent. We are completely dependent upon the Lord to sustain us. So, is it wrong to plan? Not at all. As we plan, as we look to the future, as we make choices, we should say, if it is the Lord's will. Not some type of mantra um, that becomes almost meaningless, but to really have a sense that it is, if it is the Lord's will, this is what we will do. Just a side note, um, a lot of people talk about God's will. You know, the fame in the Crusaders as they went into battle, Deus volt, God's will. You'll notice that James doesn't say that, does he? He says, if it is the Lord's will. Now, obviously, by saying the Lord, he's speaking of God, but he says the Lord because there is a recognition that he is the authority. He is our Lord, okay? Whereas if you say God's will, doesn't necessarily mean he has any place in your life. You simply say that's God's will. And I think that James' choice of words is really instructive here. The Lord, in fact, is the Lord Almighty. It is his will that directs our lives. Then verse number 17, the end of chapter 4 Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It's connected to what came previously by the word then, and in some translations, therefore. Um, it is a reminder that, okay, James has dropped some knowledge on us, and now we need, in fact, to act accordingly. And if we don't, then, in fact, we are sinning. We haven't just missed the boat. We haven't just like, oh, yeah, I, I, I forgot to do that. We are, in fact, sinning. Today we come to the third symptom of the fact that we have left the path of humility. It's found in verses 1 through 6 of James chapter 5. Listen as I read, follow along. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. This is a difficult passage and has presented uh, problems for different people. Um, one of the reasons is because it is in another chapter. It's chapter 5. And so just to remind you of something we've talked about before, when the books of the Bible were written, they did not contain chapter and verse divisions. Okay? In fact, these are something that, humanly speaking, are rather recent. Um, the chapter divisions that we use today were developed by Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He did, did this in the 13th century, 1227. The Old Testament was divided into verses by a rabbi, Rabbi Nathan, in 1448. And then Robert Etienne, uh, or Estian, who is known as Stephanus, was the first one to divide the New Testament chapters into verses. And he did this in the 16th century, in 1555. 
chapter and verse divisions were for convenience. Okay? So that if I get up and say, you know, open your Bibles to the book of James, yeah, toward the end a little bit. No, I can say chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first six verses. Okay? They are not intended to say, oh, here's a new thought. In fact, if I were dividing the Bible up into chapters, I would have included these six verses with chapter 4. Okay? But because it is in chapter 5, people are like, oh, it's a new chapter. It must be a new topic. It must be unrelated to what happened before. And the answer is no. It's simply something that is there for convenience. Let's not forget that. And this raises the second problem, which is a real big problem among commentators. They think that these six verses do not refer to Christians. That is talking about unbelievers. That it's following, that James is following the model of Old Testament prophets who would speak against the Gentiles, against unbelievers. Um, And the reason that God would do that through the prophets is to show his people that, in fact, he wasn't simply their God. He's the God of the whole world and the nations that don't believe in him. He can speak judgment against them. And in fact, that will happen. It was also intended to give comfort to God's people that, yes, God is, in fact, going to judge the unbelievers. It looks right now like they have the upper hand and and maybe they do. But in, in fact, God will judge them. But also, the Old Testament prophets intended for, for the readers, the Jews of that time, to understand that, in fact, God has a plan, and that God is calling them to obedience, even as he speaks against unbelievers. I will agree that the first six verses of chapter 5 sound so harsh, particularly verse number 6. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Listen, my life would be a lot easier, a lot more comfortable if I would say, well, this is the unbelievers, those bad guys. It's not not about Christians. Um, No, I'm convinced that James is speaking to believers. This is a sermon to the believers who have left Jerusalem because of persecution. He's calling on them to see how they're doing in the form of this sermon. It would be very strange as in, in the midst of the sermon, he's like, okay, Hold on a minute, I'm going to be talking about the unbelievers now. He's talking about believers. By the way, I was reviewing my notes last night, and I noticed that three times in my notes I say, I am convinced that James is speaking to believers. Um, I hope you get the point. In chapter 1, James did in fact speak of the reality of rich and poor Christians. Do you remember that? That in fact, both conditions bring with them trials. One would think, well, if you're poor, then really, that's a trial. But if you're rich, what kind of trial is that? But in fact, it is a test. James is not against rich people. He doesn't hate rich people. Uh, He doesn't see being economically well-off as being in opposition to being a Christian. What he does see, and so do the other New Testament writers and the Lord Jesus himself, is that there are dangers that come with being wealthy. Or those who want to become wealthy, there are dangers as well. In fact, I'm convinced that people who want to be wealthy in many ways are in greater danger than they realize. It's like, if only I had X amount of money, my life would be fine, and nothing could be further from the truth. If, in fact, James is writing to unbelievers, this doesn't fit with the rest of the book. It's, it's almost a parenthetical thing that he just sort of inserted there. Oh, by the way, let, let me pick on the unbelievers at this point. Um, but perhaps one of the greatest difficulties is that some people think, oh, Christians would never do that. Christians would never defraud other Christians. They would never hoard wealth and not give to those who, in fact, are in need. (laughs) I would say, first of all, you've probably not read church history. 
to see, in fact, that the history of the church since the time of Jesus is not a pretty picture. That God's people have not always used their wealth in a correct way. It also ignores what's going on in the church today. It's not, it's not pick on the people who are dead and gone. In the church today, we find, I think, really a wrong concept of the use of wealth. But when everything is said and done, it fails to take into account that we are sinners. To be a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you have been redeemed by God's grace, but in fact, we are still sinners. And as the hymn that Ruth announced to us, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Yes, guilty. We should understand that. If we think that Christians automatically do what is right, then why does James write this book? If, in fact, we become a Christian and then from then on we automatically do what is right, then this book is like, James, I don't know who you're talking to because all Christians I know are perfect. They do what is automatically right. No, we do not do what is automatically right. We are in constant danger of being polluted by the world. And we are in such danger because there is an ally in our hearts. You know, it'd be different if we had an enemy that was attacking us. It's something very different. We have an enemy attacking us who has allies in us. Our own sinfulness. So, James talks about hoarding. He talks about fraud, about indulgence, and about oppression. He gives us two pairs. It's the first and the third, hoarding and indulgence. And then the second pair, number two and number four, are fraud and oppression. The first one talks about me, self-care. I'm doing this. The wealth is about me. The second pair talk about hurting others. That perhaps is something we're like, yeah, I would never do that. Yeah, I might overindulge with myself, but I would never hurt someone else. Um, yeah. Let's see if that's the case. We are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. But if, in fact, we leave the path of humility, if we embrace earthly wisdom, then we will do what the world does. Remember years ago, 45 years ago, I think, that we had someone attend our service. They were new believers. Um, and anyway, he was in, in business and he was speaking to me. I, I don't know, I must have spoken about this some, at some point in the service. He came up to me afterwards and he said, listen, if I don't lie when I'm doing business, I'll never get ahead. I need to lie if I'm going to be successful. Well, that's being polluted by the world. That is, in fact, assuming that everything is in your hands or in human hands and disregards that, in fact, God is in control. It's earthly wisdom, not heavenly wisdom. Um, some people say, well, why doesn't James talk about repentance here? Uh, I think he sort of does. Verse, the first verse, weep and wail. He doesn't say repent, but he talked about weeping and wailing earlier. Um, he doesn't talk about judgment. Like, really? Uh, he talks about fire. In um, verse number seven, which the Lord willing, we'll look at next week, he talks about the Lord's coming. Um, I have handwritten in my notes, this is the third or fourth time that I have this. I'm convinced James is writing to Christians. Three things to keep in mind. First of all, he begins this section as he did the previous one. The previous one, he said, now listen, you who say, you know, we will go to such and such a city. And Here he says, now listen, you rich people. Secondly, James has already spoken about rich people in chapter 1, I mentioned earlier. 
but also in chapter 2 when he talked about caring for those who are in need. Um, so this is not, boy, you know, if people are reading this for the first time, it's like, boy, that, where did that come from? Well, he's been talking about it all along. And it is not that wealth is wrong. It is, in fact, that it may be misused. And people who have wealth have position, they have power, and they are in a position to take advantage of other people. In chapter 2, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? It's like, hold on, hold on, slandering? Didn't we just talk about slandering as being a sign of the absence of humility? Um, it'll be more than a decade, but in, after, in a decade... Paul will be writing a letter to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he deals with this problem. That is that Christians are taking each other to court. That someone has, in fact, taken advantage of someone else and someone sues him. They go to court and Paul's like, this should not be. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been complete, completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. So, okay, the church has a track record here of not doing what it should. As I said a moment ago, people think that James couldn't possibly be talking to us because Christians don't do this. In fact, they do. Okay. So, uh, by the way, isn't it interesting? There are three things he talks about. Slandering, and I think I would extend that to say gossiping, being presumptuous about the future, and then the misuse of wealth. And people would say, well, yeah, Christians, yeah, they do gossip and slander one another. Um, and they are rather presumptuous about the future. But they would never misuse wealth. They would never abuse other Christians in this regard. I'm like, yeah, I don't, yeah. I think we're guilt, we can be guilty of all three. So verse number one. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. He's not condemning the rich simply because they're rich. And to say that that's what this verse is saying is, in fact, wrong. It is to miss his point. He is condemning the rich for their misuse of wealth. And he spells it out. I've already mentioned hoarding in verse number, verses 2 and 3, fraud in verse number 4, indulgence in verse number 5, and then finally oppression in verse number 6. We are told in the Ten Commandments, he gives us in chapter 4, uh, that we are to mourn and that we are to wail. If we didn't have the chapter divisions, if we didn't have the verse divisions, I think we would see the connection a lot more clearly. Um, James is calling on those who misuse their wealth to repent. So, first of all, there's hoarding. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. In dealing with the people who have left the path of wisdom, heavenly wisdom, who have left the path of humility, he points to the practice of hoarding. Um, to call it selfish hoarding, as one writer puts it, I think would in fact be redundant, at least as James sees it. One's view of wealth should transcend this life. We are to keep our eyes on the future, on eternity. But someone who hoards does so contrary to heavenly wisdom, which recognizes that life, in fact, is temporary. A person who hoards does so as though this life, one's needs, is all that there are. So we need to hoard as much as we can. And it forgets the reality that one day we will have to give an account to God. Hoarding is a denial of a proper use of what God has given us. 
It is, in fact, a denial of trust in God. And it is, in fact, a denial of expectancy that one day the Lord Jesus will return. Paul wrote to Timothy in one of his last letters, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Again, James is not against saving. Okay? He is not against making provision for the future. What he is condemning is a failure to do what is right for failing to recognize the temporary nature of things. And I'm reminded of the story of manna in the Old Testament that the Israelites were told every morning you go out and collect manna, just enough for one day. Then the next day you go out again. But on the sixth day you collect twice as much because on the Sabbath you're not supposed to work. But right away, people on the first day started collecting you know, more than they should have, and the next day it was rotten. And God was angry with them. But it was, in fact, a form of hoarding. God said, just get enough for what you need today, and I will provide for you tomorrow. And they did not believe him. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I'm convinced that there are people to whom James is writing had actually heard Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what Jesus said, isn't it, about moths and rust? Yeah. Don't hoard. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. It sounds a lot like the final judgment because of the fire business and the last days. First of all, the last days, we've seen this as we've gone through the New Testament, the last days began when Jesus came into the world. Okay? That's the beginning of the last days. Uh, Hebrews, at the very beginning of Hebrews, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So it's not pointing to the end of history as such, a point in the future, but when Jesus came, this is the beginning of something. This is the beginning, in a sense, of the end, of the last days. Okay, So we're in the last days, and we have been for 2,000 years. Secondly, what about the fire? I think, in fact, it points to judgment, but it also points to the temporary nature of things that things can, in fact, be burned up. In some sense, I think James is trying to shock his readers. He used strong language in chapter 4 when he talked about wars and fightings and killing. Um, People may have sort of been taken aback when he talked about this, about fire and the last days. He's trying to get them, get their attention. And he says, you have fattened yourselves in the last or in the day of slaughter you have condemned and murdered innocent men yeah harsh language so what comes after hoarding fraud verse number four look the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lord almighty Um, here james is being quite specific he's speaking to people who own fields and have hired people uh, to work in the fields, to mow the fields, to harvest the crops, and in fact, the owners of the fields, to whom James is writing, have not paid people. It was in the ancient world that people got paid at the end of the day. They were daily workers. They got paid at the end of the day. Um, So that may be, I think that could be, probably is what James is talking about. But there's also the possibility that you say to someone, I'm going to pay you X amount of money, and then at the end of the day, you don't pay them that amount of money. 
you in fact defraud them. At this point, James could in fact have said, listen, poor people have little as it is, and you defraud them. Families don't have enough to eat, and yet you defraud them. The children go to bed hungry. James doesn't do this, does he? Instead, he says, God knows what's going on. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty, this is something that we sing in a mighty fortress. Lord Sabaoth, his name. Lord Almighty. And James is like, you know, forget, you know, the poor people don't have power. The kids go to bed hungry. They cry because they don't have enough to eat because you've cheated. Yeah, forget that. God's heard. The Lord Almighty has heard the cries of these people. Um, And he will judge you for this. If knowing means doing, and God knows that you've defrauded the workers, doesn't this mean that God's going to do something about it? Yeah. The third thing is indulgence. In verse number five, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Here, uh, James is talking about the fact that wealth oftentimes is used for self-indulgence, for luxury, uh, for pleasure. Um, It's interesting, he points out, I think, the following of this without saying so directly, you have lived on earth. Um, Yeah, in other words, your time here is temporary. And then you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Imagine that you are, in fact, someone who has a ranch or you have animals and you're going to slaughter one so you have food for your family and you go out into the corral, you go out into the field. Which animal are you going to pick? A skinny one or one that's that's got some weight to it. And James is saying, hey, you guys have got some weight to it. Um, you fatten yourselves up for this day of slaughter. Um, yeah. Up to this point, there are certain difficulties. So what makes somebody a hoarder? I mean, seriously, um, how much is too much? It's, it's an important question, and it's a serious one. Um, what defines self-indulgence? And you know, not, not to step on anyone's toes here, but is it an extra pair of shoes? Is it a pint of haagen I mean, what is self-indulgence? I don't know that that's necessarily the tack we are supposed to take. I think what we need to remember is path of humility. Humility, that's the key. I don't think there's wrong with having an extra pair of shoes or having some good ice cream. The question is, are we in the path of humility? The humble person recognizes his or her need of grace. while the the insistently self-centered person, in fact, sees no need of grace. Okay? If we hoard, then we are saying, basically, we are not in need of grace. And if we indulge thoughtlessly, we may, in fact, say we have no need of grace. Let's go on. The last verse, verse number six, oppression. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. And again, this is the most difficult verse of a difficult passage because uh, while I may condemn Christians in the past and in the present for not using their wealth correctly, for being hoarders, you know, for being self-indulgent, um, I don't know that I would ever accuse, accuse them of murder, of of being responsible for the death of certain people. Um, But in a world, our world, in which it is believed that survival of the fittest is the rule, then in fact, 
we may have a certain ruthlessness where we do not care for those who are in need, the first point of the sermon, and it's all about ourselves. Of all the points that James makes here, I think the one that perhaps applies to us today, in my opinion, is the matter of indulgence, that is, consumption. We are a society that is marked, if not defined, by consumption. I'm going to read you several things. The first is from Christopher Lesh in his classic work, The Culture of Narcissism. He says, advertising serves not so much to advertise products as to promote consumption as a way of life. It educates the masses into an unappeasable appetite, not only for goods, but for new experiences and personal fulfillment. It upholds consumption as the answer to the age-old discontents of loneliness, sickness, weariness, lack of sexual satisfaction. At the same time, it creates new forms of discontent particular or peculiar to the modern age. It plays seductively on the malaise of industrial civilization. Is your job boring and meaningless? Does it leave you with feelings of futility and fatigue? Is your life empty? Consumption promises to fill the aching void, hence the attempt to surround commodities with an aura of romance with allusions to exotic places and vivid experiences. Are you lonely? Is your life just out of whack? Go buy something. Buy something. Something that the advertisers will in fact put in front of you as something that will answer your needs. And then... uh, James K.A. Smith, and uh, he did a series of books on uh, desiring the kingdom, worship, worldview, and cultural formation. And he has a couple brilliant passages on the liturgy of the mall. How that, you know, we have liturgy in church, there's certain things that we do. And he says, when you go to the mall, it's the same thing, it's another form of worship. You know, that it is, in fact, a cathedral that has all these chapels on the side. But he says, in fact, that there is almost, uh, he doesn't put it this way, but it's almost an attempt to mimic or to mirror what we find in the church. So there is an implicit uh, admission of brokenness. I'm broken, therefore I shop. There's a strange configuration of sociality. I shop with others. I don't go to an empty mall. I go and there are other people who are doing the same thing. There's also the hope of redemption. I shop, therefore I am. And there is a vision of human flourishing. Don't ask, don't tell. In an age that is marked by consumption, we need to hear the words of James. We consume, we have convenience, And by the way, such thinking has come into the church to the point where the gospel now is seen as a product. And the presentation is what what will bring people in. That somehow we need to advertise, we need somehow to provoke in people a sense that life lacks something. I think people already know that. And so the gospel is simply presented as one alternative to all the other things you can find in the mall. In a culture in which amassing wealth is not only condoned but admired, we have to come to grips with the dangers of wealth. And the answer is to walk the path of humility. As I said, we hear from James that being rich is, in fact, not wrong. Where sin is among the rich is that they, in fact, acquire their wealth, perhaps in an ungodly way. But let's say that they don't. The spirit that it engenders, that, in fact, they trust in their wealth rather than in God. And the way that their wealth is used. 
Worldly wealth is, in fact, an area of high risk when it comes to walking humbly before God. I don't speak from experience here. I don't consider myself a wealthy person, but I, could, I think I could easily imagine that if I were a wealthy person, humility would be one of the things that would probably go out the window. When we become affluent, it opens the door to commercial carelessness, and we become insensitive to the needs of those around us. It's interesting that James would have worked out really well if he had presented an alternative. You've done these bad things, now these are the good things you ought to do. Um, Why doesn't he do that? Because you know what? Even when we do good things with what God has given us, if we're not on the path of humility, we still can be wrong. We, in fact, can leave the path of humility. Remember what I said earlier, Christians do not automatically do what is right. That's why James wrote this book. We are in constant danger of being polluted by the world because there is an ally in our hearts. There is something that draws us to live as the world does. Is it wrong to be rich? No, it's not. Is it wrong to put aside savings? Not at all. Is it wrong to enjoy what one has earned? No, it is not. Then what is the problem? What's James' problem here? The question is, in what do you put your trust? Are you walking the path of humility that says, I trust in God, and I must trust in God because I'm ignorant, I'm frail, my time here is temporary, I'm dependent upon God, I must walk the path of humility. It goes back to presumption. Something else. In going through this, I I think the thought occurs more than once. I would never do that. I would never hoard. I would never defraud someone. I would never oppress someone. I wouldn't be overly self-indulgent. Then why did James write this? In a society that thrives on consumption, we are in great danger of being polluted by the world and to misuse what God has given us. Let me close by reading to you some words that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And in the last words of the sermon, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came and the streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. As I was looking at this and putting in the sermon, I'm like, crash, that, that's like a, is that like, a Wall Street crash. I find it interesting that that's the word that we choose to use. James says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do, but doesn't do it, sins. Let's pray together. Our Father, frankly, we're a little uncomfortable with what James has to say here. It would feel a lot better if we could say he's talking about those other people. We are grateful for what you have given each one of us. We have homes to live in. We have family. We have friends. We have jobs, health, safety, freedom. And we are grateful for these things. But perhaps they turn our heads away from the path of humility, from recognizing that these, in fact, are gifts from you. In the scheme of things, we are, in fact, a wealthy people compared to most people in human history to most people who live on this planet, some who do not have enough to eat. May we not somehow seek to avoid the truth of what James says, but take it to heart. I thank you for how gracious you are. You are tirelessly running after us with grace grace upon grace. You call us to walk in humility, and by your grace may we do so. We remember again Lonnie, our dear sister. Pray that you would touch her, give her relief, and guide the doctors and the decisions to be made. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we walk through the world in the coming days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.